Last weekend, I likened the church to a sailing ship, one attempting to successfully navigate dangerous, hazard-filled waters as it journeys towards God's ordered destination. Today, as I promised, I want to focus on one of the most dangerous stretches of water that the church has to navigate. It's often proved to be a virtual Bermuda Triangle for the church, a place where countless Jesus followers have incurred serious injury to their faith and the shipwreck of their witness. If we fail to navigate these waters with discernment, we may find ourselves one day clinging to the floating wreckage of a compromised devotion to God, while our spiritual identity and resources and priorities and confidences slowly sink beneath the waves. The waters I'm referring to are found where the currents of devotion to God intersect the currents of human politics, and for our purposes, specifically the politics of this nation. To begin our consideration, I want to read five very brief texts. None of them speak directly of the dangerous waters we're considering today, but all of them speak to how we are to conduct ourselves as we navigate them. And I've taken the liberty of italicizing and underscoring the words in each of these verses that establish their relevance to our topic today. The first speaks to our true identity and our current situation. It's Philippians 3.20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The second text speaks to our assigned mission while we wait. Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, all people groups. The third speaks to our conduct in interpersonal relationships. James 1, 19 and 20, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. The fourth speaks to a non-negotiable priority. Ephesians 4, 3, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And the fifth and final text warns of an always present danger as we navigate these waters. It's 1 Corinthians 10, 14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Now, last week I jokingly suggested that how I engage this topic might be disappointing or upsetting to some, and that's true, but I want you to know my objective is never to be controversial. My objective is to help us navigate the dangerous waters safely and emerge with our souls and our witness healthy and intact. And toward that end, I'm entitling today's teaching, Involved in politics, but devoted to Jesus. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, by your Spirit, enable me to faithfully discharge my duty to faithfully preach and teach your truth to this assembly of men and women that you love. And I pray that you would help each one of us to hear what the Spirit is saying to our hearts today, where we are, 
And I pray that you'd help us to understand your word and know what the application of it will look like in our life. Father, as always, we pray these things with confidence, and we pray them in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. And as we listen for God's voice together today, may the Lord be with you. Several years ago, during a previous presidential election cycle in our nation, I received a letter from a member of our congregation who was just distressed by the pervasive ugliness of our political process, and she just needed to vent a little bit. Now, safe to say, she wasn't alone. She lamented the absence of candidates with a consistent, across-the-board, biblical position. But to her credit, as she lamented the state of affairs, she did it without allowing her frustration or her disappointment to corrupt her soul or her language. Without quoting them, she aligned her heart with James 1 and Ephesians 4 because she showed no anger, no bitterness, no slander, no malice. And she avoided the ever-present temptation to judge other people's hearts. Now, safe to say, all of us can relate to her concerns. But the truth be told, few believers in the time when these five scriptures were written would be able to relate to her concerns. The truth is, few of the writers of sacred scripture would be able to relate to her concerns. Because most of the people that we read about in Scripture and most of those who were used by God to write Scripture rarely had a voice in matters of politics and power. They were unfamiliar with the concepts of voting and a ballot box and elections. Most of them lived under the imposed rule of the latest conqueror of their region or the latest king or the latest Caesar, and they had no voice in who that would be. So it should come as no surprise that while God's Word speaks clearly to big-picture objectives like justice and care for the poor and compassion, Scripture doesn't offer specific voting instructions for believers. Instead, it offers them specific lifestyle instructions. The instructions that are aimed at helping them to do two things, live righteously and advance God's righteous cause in a broken world. And there's a good reason why Scripture puts its emphasis there. Scripture and history both remind us that God's righteous cause does not depend upon secular human politics. Now, I'm aware human politics can certainly create stiff challenges to the cause of God, and they've often done so. And I'm aware human political bodies can even actively oppose the cause of God. Many communistic regimes have done so. But no political regime will defeat the cause of God because Jesus said, I will build my church and the very gates of hell will not be able to stop me or withstand it. And if the gates of hell can't stop what Jesus is up to in the world, no government will. Pharaoh was the most powerful man on the face of the earth, but he could not stop the cause of God in his day. 
Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful man on the face of the earth when he lived, but he could not stop what God was up to in the world. Caesar couldn't stop it. Hitler couldn't stop it. Stalin didn't stop it. Mao didn't stop it. No political entity, no political leader will stop God from building His church. And we need to remember that. But we also need to remember how God has chosen to build His church. And God has opted to build His church primarily through the witness of His righteous followers. So in light of that fact, righteousness must never take a back seat to political concerns. Never, never, never. Now, I'm not suggesting that the two are inherently exclusive and opposed to one another. They're not. A nation's political developments are a concern to God. They have massive implications for that nation's populace and many times the populace of other people in the world. And God's clearly on record about His concern for things like the poor and hunger and justice and so on. That's why true righteousness will birth political engagement and inform that political engagement But when political engagement takes center stage, when it becomes our chief hope, when it becomes our chief overriding passion, that means the ship has run aground. When that happens, we compromise our righteousness and we stumble into idolatry. And sadly, there's a lot of that going on. I've been pastoring now for over 40 years. During that time, I have watched in election cycle after election cycle after election cycle, I have watched followers of Jesus display far more passion for the outcome of an election than I ever see them display for lost humanity and the fulfillment of God's great commission to take the gospel to all the world. In matters political, they let you know where they stand. They let you know with passion. They want to tell everybody. In matters of sharing the gospel, they'll languish over a policy but never show anguish over their lost neighbor. You see, our passions reveal our priorities. Our passions reveal the real source of our hopes. Our passions reveal our supreme allegiances. And if we get passionate about politics but apathetic about the kingdom of God, then politics has taken center stage. We're compromised and we're stumbling into idolatry because we're sacrificing who we are in Christ for what is happening in a nation state. And that seriously jeopardizes God's mission through us. And given the importance of that mission and the eternal implications of it, I'd like to suggest if we allow the political ugliness around us to birth spiritual ugliness within us, the consequences of that will far exceed 
those of corrupt politics. See, the consequences of corrupt politics are often limited in time, but the consequences of compromising the work of God are eternal. All that to say there is a whole lot more at stake in the next election election cycle for God's people than the immediate and future course of our nation and its people. At stake is the immediate and future condition of our souls and of our witness for Christ. So today I want to offer three biblical principles, what I believe are three biblical principles that will help us to be appropriately involved in politics while we maintain uncompromised devotion to Christ. Here's the first. Don't make an idol of politics. Hope in God. Something becomes an idol when we look to it rather than God for our identity, our security, our well-being, our strength, and our hope. And since human politics often promise results in those areas, if we aren't careful, politics can easily assume idle status. We begin to base our hopes, our expectations, our identity, our security on a political party, a political candidate, a political system. Now, God repeatedly warned ancient Israel about doing that. If you've read the Old Testament, you know that ancient Israel often honored God with their lips, but they didn't honor God with their hopes. You thought I was going to say with their lies. Now, they didn't honor God with their hopes because they repeatedly put their hopes in some charismatic human leader or some political system rather than God. And that mess started in the aftermath of that day when they had God and only God as their leader. Remember that? For many years, Israel's king was God himself, and he revealed his will through his prophets. And rather than being happy under a perfect, loving, powerful, enlightened monarch, the people of Israel said, can we have a king like our neighbors? Can we have a human ruler and a human political system? And God said, well, if that's what you want, I'll give it to you. But just be forewarned, they'll tax you into oblivion and they'll send your sons and daughters off to war to protect their power. And then they'll start the cycle all over again. And God was dead on in his forecast, and political leaders have been doing that ever since. But Israel repeatedly turned their trust away from God and put it in some human leader, some human political institution. And the New Testament tells us God wrote extensively about their mistakes so that we wouldn't repeat them. Paul said... God wrote all about ancient Israel for your example so that you could learn from their mistakes. Now, once idols are in place, people invest in them. They invest in them heavily. And all of us protect our investments. And that explains in part the ugly, divisive rhetoric that is so common during our election periods. When our hopes rest in idols, we resent anything that threatens those idols. If you've put your trust in a system, in a person, and something is threatening that system or that person, you've got to resent 
whatever threatens it. In contrast, when our hopes are in God, we don't feel threatened and we don't feel the need to be resentful because we know, unlike a politician, God can't be threatened. Nobody's going to impeach him. Nobody's going to remove him from his throne. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Don't make an idol of politics. They can't deliver what only God can. Second, don't politicize your faith by making God and a specific political ideology a package deal. Don't attempt to create what the Bible calls an unequal yoke, two things joined together that have no business being together. Don't attempt to join God and something that's other than God and inherently inferior to God and less than God. And that includes a political platform, political party, or political candidate. Doing so effectively equates your faith with that political ideology, platform, party, or candidate. And when you do that, it's almost invariable that at some point you will subordinate your faith and God's Word to the ideology you have embraced. You will make compromises of your relationship with God to stay loyal to your political ideology. And when we do that, we not only lose our way, we lose a large chunk of our listening audience. You see, if, if following Jesus gets identified as Republican, the next sound you hear is Democratic hearts closing. If following Jesus gets identified as Democrat, the next sound you hear is Republican hearts closing. If following Jesus gets identified with libertarianism, the next sound you hear is Republican and Democrat hearts closing. But any time we subordinate our faith to an ideology, we lose a chunk of the listening audience that God called us to witness to. The third principle, don't demonize your opponents. Remember, disagreement with your political persuasion doesn't make somebody evil. Disagreement with God constitutes evil. James 3, 9, and 10 warns us that God finds it unacceptable when we use the same tongue to bless God and then curse people made in God's likeness. You know, when, when I was younger, if somebody came up to you and said something particularly foul and vile and inappropriate, we would sometimes come back and say, do you talk to your mother with that tongue? You ever hear anybody say that? You, would you, you talk to your mom with that tongue? Sometimes believers need somebody to walk up to them and say, do you talk to God with that tongue? Is that the same tongue you use when you're worshiping? Don't get caught up in what I like to call the ideological food fights that play out every day on cable news or the streams of accusations and insults so common to social media. That's conduct unbecoming of God's people. And there may be occasions when you would be better advised to repent 
rather than repost something that's vicious. Remember, the fact that somebody disagrees with your politics doesn't mean they're the spawn of hell and Satan's grandchild. (laughs) And where fellow believers are involved, always remember, Christians may differ politically, but they're always one in Christ. Differing political politically, but one in Christ. Now, I'm not suggesting we should refrain from debating politics. I'm saying believers should be better equipped for fair, honorable debate than better equipped than anybody in the world. We have the Holy Spirit in us to monitor our thoughts and our speech. I'm suggesting in light of that, our arguments should be sanctified rather than snarky. They should exhibit grace rather than in your face. And when we point out where we believe a fellow believer is wrong, it should never be done in anger, pride, ad hominem put-downs, or smug sarcasm. When we state where we believe we're right, we should do so with disarming humility and persuasion, not arrogance. And the passion to persuade somebody else should never yield to an an eagerness to condemn them. I'm not suggesting we pretend that we all agree. We do not. I'm not suggesting you trim back the substance of your differences. I'm saying we must never allow political differences to divide us into the real Christians and the fake Christians. Because Jesus said, don't do that. Don't you attempt to divide the wheat from the weeds because it's above your pay grade. You don't have the right stuff. You look from the outward. I know people's hearts. And you'll tend to judge them based on how they align with what you believe about certain things rather than what I know about certain things. So don't play Jesus. Don't play Jesus. And remember Paul's words. Even though we are filled with the Spirit of God, we currently see as through dark glass. Not everything is clear to us yet. That's where fellow believers are concerned. Where unbelievers are concerned, you must never allow political disagreement to lead you to denigrate them, call them names, or vilify them. And here's why. This is a very important principle. When we vilify unbelievers, they become the enemy rather than the mission field. I want you to read that with me. When we vilify unbelievers, they become the enemy instead of the mission field. They become them, the people ruining everything. And once you take that posture, it's not likely you're going to lovingly, graciously, humble speak to them about Jesus, which is their ultimate need. And then your compassionate witness gives way to resentment. They're ruining everything. Friends, when Jesus returns, I don't want to be found talking to believers 
about how those unbelievers are ruining everything. I want to be found talking to unbelievers about a Jesus who is able to restore everything that has been ruined. That's the difference between making politics an idol and keeping the main thing the main thing. I mean, it's easy to stand up in church and say, unbelievers are making a mess. You're preaching to the choir. Oh, you have a way to tell them, Pastor. (laughs) But it's quite another to go to an unbeliever and patiently build a relationship and listen to all their objections and love them anyhow and slowly, patiently do your piece in God's progressive work of bringing them to redemption. The essence of the gospel is that God graciously reaches out to sinful people. If he didn't, none of us would be here. And then he pleads with them to reconsider their ways. And then he waits patiently through their foolishness and their rebellion. That's how we got here. And that's what God wants us to do with lost people, not vilify them for making a mess. Sinners are got to sin. That's what they do. But the answer is not for believers to sin. Now, just as I said last week about the prophets, I'll say again today about Jesus. I know Jesus sometimes used some pretty harsh language with his critics and his opponents. But I want to remind you, he was in the unusual position of knowing their hearts. And we don't have that level of insight. What we do have are specific commands to love our enemies. And and this is a topic for another day, but many of the people that we assume are our enemies aren't really our enemies if we get to know them. We project certain things onto them and then categorize them as enemies, but if we get to know them, we might find they're not really our enemies and they're candidates to be our brothers and sisters. And we're to treat them as we want to be treated. I want to remind you all those statements about love your neighbor, love your enemies, give graciousness for hostility, bless those who curse you, do unto others. Those don't get set aside once every four years during American elections. God doesn't say, oh, I see there down in the United States, it's election time. All right, body of Christ in America, forget all that stuff for a while. Get in there, get down, get dirty, call names, go for it. And then when it's all over, let's, let's get back to this. But some believers act like God's Word gets set aside during our election cycles because they get down and dirty. In closing, I want to remind you of something. No matter which candidate gains the presidency, Jesus will still be Lord. And our hope is in Him. I know uh, the election of candidate A might mean more difficulty for the church than the election of candidate B. I, I get all those kinds of things, but... Since when was the church guaranteed an easy lot? Jesus said, 
and I think he probably put in parenthesis, no matter who the President of the United States is, in parenthesis, they hated me, they'll hate you. In this world, you will have trouble. That's always been the case. Who gets elected may make hardship a little harder or hardship a little less hard, but, uh, you know, I have found the temptation to compromise for the church is almost greater when we feel those in power are with us than it is when we know those in power are against us because we take too much for granted. So no matter who wins, Jesus will be Lord. And I want to say in advance, the first weekend we gather together after the election, if your person didn't win, don't come in looking like you are exercised of the demon of joy. (laughs) Come in ready to praise the eternal God. One thing Jesus will not say is, ooh, fill in the blank, got elected. What will we ever do now? (laughs) There goes my church. It was all for naught. It was a good thing while it lasted. No, we're not going to hear that. We're not going to hear that. And remember, no matter who gains the presidency, he or she will not be able to profoundly impact the real things that are destroying our nation because they're spiritual strongholds. And politicians don't have the spiritual weapons to drive back spiritual strongholds. The weapons of their warfare are carnal, natural. Spiritual weaponry has been given to the people of God. Only the church can drive back spiritual darkness, but only a church that knows the difference between involvement and idolatry. Otherwise, it becomes part of the darkness. Elections have consequences. Sometimes those are severe. So I'm not suggesting that what happens in 2020 will not be important. It will be. I'm simply reminding you it will not be of ultimate importance. God's kingdom is of ultimate importance. And whoever occupies that office does not determine what you allow into your heart. They won't determine what you feel. They won't determine what you value. They won't determine what you think. The Holy Spirit is to do that. And in light of that, our passions need to align with God's passion, which is that broken people everywhere would hear of the Lord Jesus Christ and have a valid opportunity to be born again and experience life abundant. The church should always be the people focusing on the eternal rather than obsessed with the temporary. Involvement in politics should never replace devotion to God. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, it's often tricky navigating this world and following the blueprint of Scripture because they're often at odds. And sometimes where they appear to be in harmony, they're at odds. And sometimes when they appear to be at odds, they may be in harmony. It, It is not an exercise for the faint of heart. But, Father, you've given us your word, and it hasn't changed. You've given us your spirit. That hasn't changed. And we, of all people, should know the difference between idolatry and devotion. So over this next couple of years, when it appears everybody is losing their mind, 
Let our mind be the mind of Christ. And when so many will divide and vilify and hate, help us to love and care and preach and teach and serve so that no matter who is elected, there will be within this nation a vibrant, uncompromised body of Christ still carrying out your eternal mission. Grant us discernment. Grant us courage. Grant us wisdom. And God, keep us from losing our soul in politics. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.